dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. The non-Christian world can paint a vision of capitalism wherein the owner or the boss rules over his workers, exacting from them the maximum of energies in the most efficient way possible for the maximum profit. Is this the vision that God has for our work? In its landmark document from 2011, the Catholic Church lays out six principles to guide business leaders. Its third principle holds that business ought to be for the benefit of the employees as well as the customer. Here's how this can be done. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so glad that you're back with me uh, in the St. John Leadership Network as we're studying together this awesome document from the Vatican on the six principles that are to organize our work as Catholic leaders in the world of business. And of course, we talk about business, but this can be applied equally to other professions. In fact, it can be applied also to motherhood or to fatherhood or to our our relationships and our families, right? But I just know that so often the business person themselves feel neglected because it's almost like this so important aspect of human activity is left to you know self-help books or to pop psychologists in order to give guidance when the wisdom of the church has a lot to say about it. And in fact, if we could apply all of the depth of the spirituality of the Catholic Church to the business world, boy, what an impact we would make. We'd actually have saints in business. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? And there are, by the way, saints who have been in business. You have St. Margaret of York, for example, who's the, the patroness of the Catholic businesswoman. Interestingly enough story, she was married to a butcher in York and one of the most prosperous of all butchers in a town known for its meat. And St. Margaret of York actually used her position and social status that came from her husband's uh, profession in order to then hide priests and serve priests at a time when priests were being persecuted. So she, and she became a great saint by doing it. Or St. Hamabinus, it's kind of has a funny name. His name actually means good man in Latin. So kudos to his parents for thinking of a good name for that one. Good name is good man, right? So his name, Homo Bonus, Hamabinus. He lived in Northern Italy and every day he was a prosperous merchant who would then give his prosperity away to the poor. And he prayed every day before going to work. And then the prosperity of his work would then go to help the poor. You have prayer, work, and charity all in one individual. And he actually died at mass. He was at a, at mass and he, during the Gloria, when the priest was chanting the Gloria at mass, he laid prostrate on the ground in adoration of God and he never got up. They had to come and find him and they found him there in his prayer. So, I mean, you have, and you have, of course, many, many other examples of secular people engaging in the fields of medicine, in the fields of law. You have Thomas More in law. You have St. John Amola in medicine. And by practicing their professions, they found holiness. I want to unpack that with you. And so does the Catholic Church, because you are made to be a saint 
and called to be a saint there in your profession. And so especially for those who are engaged in the world of business, the great question becomes how? Because it seems like the coefficients of competition and selfishness are intrinsic in the business endeavor. And in an environment where I see my advancement as coming at the expense of someone else's demise, how can I actually live charity, right? Or if I'm trying to always be efficient and think about the corporation more than the people, how can I actually say I care for people and so forth? And it's a, it's a real challenge and I get it because you can't just ignore the demands intrinsic to the business environment to organizing productive activity. You, you can't live in a pie in the sky attitude because realism is realism. And the nature of things is such that their own intrinsic laws has to be respected. And part of the law of business is that it needs to grow and therefore be profitable. And that level of profit then becomes a goal that has to be taken into account. But honestly, that's kind of why we started the St. John Leadership Network is because I actually think we're called to rise up and meet that challenge. I don't think we're called to say that because it's hard, it's impossible. I think we're called to say because it's hard, I'm going to get there with the grace of God. And so does the Catholic Church. And so she issued a document in 2011 that list listed out six different principles and organized them according to three headings, good goods, good work, and good wealth put two principles into each of those headings, right? I want to focus in today on good work, organizing good and productive work, right? And so this is, of course, what we're all supposed to be doing, but I don't know if many of us realize that in the Catholic mind, the way we work is as important as what we do, right? St. John Paul II, he uses a fancy term. He calls it subjective elements of work and objective elements of work. Don't worry about all of that. That's philosophy. I want you to focus in on what it means. And what it means is that how we do something is as important as what we're doing. You can't have a what you know, without a how. Neither can you have a how without a what, right? And so you have those, in those two different you know, scenarios, you have two extremes to be avoided. The what without the how would be an unbridled market economy where people just do whatever they do at the expense of their workers to get the maximum profit as possible, saying that the value of the work is how much is produced for how many at, you know, at how low of a cost. And on the other hand, though, you could also have those who say, no, 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 the how is, is, is important without the what, meaning that we should just be in work to do things in loving ways. And they basically make work into a charity, right? Well, you can't survive as a business if you run it like a charity. But on the other hand, you can't really survive as a charity if you run it like a business. The answer lies in the middle, and it's by uniting the how and the what. To say that what we do is as important as how we do it. And that is how we do something and the way that we organize our productive activity is as important to us as business leaders as what we're producing. This is real leadership. And it's a challenge. It'd be so easy to say, no, 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 we're here. If you can't make your numbers, you're fired. Whoever's going to be the best at making the numbers and the bottom line, that's the one the business supports. And that would be easy. That would be easy. It's much harder to say, you know what? We're going to make our numbers, but we're going to make our numbers in a way that actually benefits the people who are making them and allows them to live that eight to 12 hours a day that they're giving to this company 
in a way that makes them better people. And, you know, and many, many companies will say, oh, well, that's just, Father, you're being soft. That's all that Catholic gobbledygook. It's not true. There have been, of course, many, many studies on this. I'm just going to read off some statistics that might surprise you. Healthcare expenditures at high-pressure companies, for example, are nearly 50% greater than at other organizations. The American Psychological Association, for example, estimates that more than $500 billion, billion with a B, is siphoned off from the U.S. economy because of workplace stress. And 550 million workdays are lost each year due to stress on the job. 60% to 80% of workplace accidents are attributed to stress, right? You just want to think about that. For all of you who work in those industries that are susceptible to that. And it's estimated that more than 80% of doctor visits are due to stress. Well, gosh, if we could reduce stress in the workplace, we could actually also be saving money, even economically. Here are some more, right? So if we want to really live in a cutthroat culture, we're going to insert, ensure engagement, supposedly, but it'll also lead eventually to disengagement with work. And disengagement is costly. And studies by the Queen's School of Business and by the Gallup organization, disengaged workers had 30% higher absenteeism, 49% more accidents, and 60% more errors and defects. Wherever a business has a low engagement of its people, really, you know, giving their best, 18% lower productivity, 16% lower profitability in the business, 37% lower job growth, and a 65% lower share price over time. Actually, workplace stress leads to an increase of almost 50% involuntary turnover. And all of us know how much that'll kill us in our businesses. I could just keep on going, right? But like, you get the point. You've all read studies like that before. Why haven't you responded? This is a Christian moment. Not only if I invest in my people, will I increase my profitability in my business, but I'll also be serving Christ effectively. I'll be offering my people the opportunity to work like the children of God that they are. And in the final analysis, isn't that why I'm in business to begin with? Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. Okay, so we all know that Jesus is calling us as business leaders, and we know that that means that I got to bring my faith to bear, not only in what I produce, but in the way that I produce it, the way that we organize ourselves in our labor and in our companies in order to help people to work better. But what does that look like concretely? This is always a challenge for us because the church writes these documents, remembering that it's the priests, it's academics. This is where we really thrive. It's in the world of big ideas. But in the actual implementation, people can sometimes get frustrated because they say, well, the church didn't really tell me exactly what to do. And I would just like to kind of say, you know what? That's because you are the people who know how to do it. You are the great ones. You are the leaders who need to take that principle and then apply it in the actual circumstances of wherever you are. This is why you have your role and the priests and the academics have our role. I'm going to try to help you out with that a little bit anyway. And I want to do it by, first of all, you know, referring to some of the, the, the writings that we find here in the vocation of the Catholic business leader that's been issued by Rome 2011. 
Here in paragraph 48, it says, It is a scandal, Pope Pius XI wrote, when dead matter comes forth from the factory ennobled, while men there are corrupted and degraded. What a statement, right? I think we all see what's happening. We're here making trucks, we're making wheels, we're making whatchamacallits, whatever they are. And so we're taking matter and we're transforming it to make it more beautiful, to make it stronger, to make it into an organized substance. And yet the very people who are doing it become disordered, disorganized, and fall to pieces because of the way that they're being asked to work. In other words, the culture of the workplace needs to be one that supports the humanity of the worker, not only by maintaining it, but by encouraging and fostering it. Wouldn't it be great to have my workers come to work for me every single day and leave better people? I mean, if you really want to change the world, have the eight to 12 hours that a person is there in their workplace be a place that makes people more intelligent, more responsible, more caring, and more creatively engaged in their own lives. I mean, your work would then be a school for your family life. We say this is not just a vision, it's a commandment. If Christ has given us the power to command eight to 12 hours of a person's life every day, he's going to ask us what we did with those people. Did we give them the safe environment that they need? Did we supply for the psychological needs of rest that they need? Did we help their work to flow smoothly? Did we take care of the various crises that come their way from managers that don't pay attention to them, to the greed, to the competition, to the jealousy that can pervade the workplace? Did we allow our people to feel like they were being talked about, that they were being slandered? I mean, how, what is your culture like? I went to a seminar one time for business presidents and the seminar leader did a great job. He said to us, if you want to know what your culture is like, we're going to stop this class right now. And I want all of you to go out and call one employee that you know will tell you the truth. And when, what I want you to do is ask them the question, what do the other people think about working for me? And so we had all of us presidents go outside and we had to call an employee that whose opinion we knew we would, you know, we could trust and that they would tell us the truth. And then ask that employee to tell us what the other people think about working for us. And you should have seen this president slinking back in to the seminar as they were given a big wake up call that many people on their teams were not happy. It's a universal thing, you know, not just that, not happy because of their wages or but they weren't happy about their work environment itself. Now, what does that tell you? You know as well as I, if someone has to get up every day and dread going into work because they're getting bullied there or because they're feeling that they're not free to innovate there or because no one listens to them there, they're going to be likely to leave. And turnover will kill your company quicker than anything else, especially if it's a small business. And, and, and so how do I turn that around? That's the Catholic moment. That's where Christ and his grace challenging you can make a huge difference for the world of which we are responsible. And you could be a mom listening at home right now with your kids all around you. You know, how do you create a culture in your home where you can both mother and take care of their basic needs that they need, but do it in a way that creates saints that creates excited leader individuals who will go forth from your home and do great things for Christ. Well, of course, you're like, that's the point. I know that's the point. And that's what I'm calling you to. The church does give some examples here and it gives us some guidance. So let's take a look at that. 
The document, first of all, quotes Pope John Paul II. And he says that he taught that when people work, they do not simply make more, but they become more. Now, this is a principle we're going to see echoed further on in the document. But it basically says that our role as leaders is to make sure that the people who are underneath us actually advance and become leaders themselves in their own domains that we're there to cultivate not only whatever it is that we're doing but we're there to cultivate the people who are doing it they call this subsidiarity but that's an incredible insight when people work they do not simply make more they become more so my job as a leader is to make sure that my individuals can actually engage in their work like the human beings that they are, that they can take that matter that they have to transform and by engaging their talents and their tools and all of their experience with it, whatever that be, but from spreadsheets to ideas to classrooms, but do I give them the space to actually produce something of their own by it? Using people, other words, as cogs in the machine is never appropriate. Now, you might do different levels, right? Sometimes you have to have cogs in the machine, so to speak, of positions that are very simple, but it's all about the how. Do I allow my people to engage with their greatness to the degree that they can in whatever job that they have, even if it be simple, right? It's not so much that the, the thing itself that's being done as the way that I encourage them to do it and support them in it. Sometimes you can't change the position itself, but you can always change and influence the culture to make the person in that position productive in a way that's genuine and improves them as much as they improve the world. Pope John Paul II says it beautifully. He says, the worker is also greatly affected by his or her own work. Whether we think about executives, farmers, nurses, janitors, engineers, or tradespeople, Work changes both the world and the worker. Because work changes the person, it can enhance or suppress that person's dignity. It can allow a person to develop or to be damaged. Our role as Catholic leaders is to do everything we can to allow them to be developed and not damaged. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. Okay, so where does the Vatican get practical, right? I can hear all of you out there rustling around. You're thinking to yourself, where is it that I can actually apply this? And, and I get it, right? But like on the one hand, the Vatican's job is not to apply it, right? The Vatican's job is to give the principles, to paint the picture. It's your job to then take that down and say, in my work field, in my company, I'm going to apply this, all right? But that being said, there are some good guidance that's given here in this document. I want to look at paragraph 49 of the vocation of the Catholic business leader, you know, put out by the Vatican in 2011. Because here some elements are given. I'm just going to read it for you, right? First, then we're going to talk about it. First, it says, Consequently, work must be designed for the capacities and qualities of human beings. Right? And so we must not simply require that people adapt to their work as if they were machines. 
And you can say, oh, shoot, it's so much easier. <laughs> it's so much easier to manage people as if they were machines. Yeah, well, we've also seen, according to the studies, that it's not economically viable. Your profitability will be down. Your, your, your health care is going to go through the roof. Your turnover is going to double. All this stuff, right? And so, but even so, there it is. You have to do this because it's ethical. The document continues. Good work gives scope for the intelligence and freedom of workers. It promotes social relationships and real collaboration, and it does not damage the health or and physical well-being of the worker, let alone spiritual well-being and religious freedom. To arrange good work, leaders need to have the freedom, responsibility, and ability to develop the right person in the right job, right? So we can see this kind of going on. Here I see three principles enunciated that I think are really great for us to adapt and to try to find some practical solutions to, okay? He, they define it. So the goal here for you as a leader is good work, right? So what does good work look like? And it says, number one, it gives scope for the intelligence and freedom of workers. Now, this is a, a thought that really opens us up to a lot of initiative on our end. Do my people have the ability to tackle the problems as the intelligent workers that they actually are? Do I incorporate their feedback, their intelligence, and listen to how they are to approach the problems? I remember when I used to be a roofer in Northwest Ohio, and there was a kind of a joke about the difference between the tradesmen, the roofers who had to apply the roofs, and the architects or the engineers who created the plans. And there, we used to chuckle about it because we would look at the drawings about what's supposed to be there and how we're supposed to put the different roofing systems on the roof. And then we would look at the actual reality and we would say, who in, in the world designed this? You know, it would be so much easier if you did it this way, right? But there was no feedback. There was no way for us, who were the tradesmen, to give the input to the engineers and to the architects. And so consequently, we just felt disgruntled and we deprived the world of our genius where we could have <laughs> shared with those other powers that be a different way of doing it. I think we've all had this experience where you feel as if the ones who are on the ground aren't listened to. Do your people on the ground feel like they're listened to? We have procedures, we have policies, but many times we haven't re-examined them to see how it feels to be the one implementing them. I remember one person saying about entrepreneurs that the entrepreneurial president of a company gets to live the dream while all the people working for him get to live the nightmare, right? Well, Obviously, you can see that that little glib statement could actually be very true unless the president takes the time to sit and ask how the people are feeling, not only about their job, but about their workplace. Obviously, our time and employee reviews is a great time to do this, but there's also a lot of impromptu check-ins that we can do where we take the time to simply ask our workers if they feel good about working. How are you doing in your space? How can we improve your process that you have to face every single day? Do you feel boxed in? How, can, how would you solve these problems? And it's a little bit of management and a lot of listening we could actually make huge gains, not only in what we do, but in our people feeling like they are trusted and like we actually are trustworthy ourselves. The second principle that the document lays out is it says, good work promotes social relationships 
and real collaboration. What an amazing thought here. To be able to purify our culture from the inside, from the thinking of division and of social classes that can so encumber our collaboration, and to say here in our workspace, we actually work together. In other words, the people who are on the bottom end of the work are actually the most important. And we all know this. It's just like anything. If you don't have wheels, the car can't drive. But when was the last time that the driver actually took time to thank the wheels? In our way of speaking, do we constantly speak about our directorship and our leadership teams as being more important? Sometimes you kind of have to because you also have to play with those folks and their own sense of self and their self-importance. But let's be real. The more that our culture empowers everyone on the team to see their unique contribution, the more collaboration we're going to have, the more successful we're going to be as a company, and the more joyful it's going to be to work there, both for the people at the top and the people at the bottom. Nothing is more fun than working on a team. And but creating a team environment takes conscientious effort. I need to be able to invest myself in that effort and create that culture of real collaboration and social relationships by fostering a culture of respect, giving my people respect, insisting that everyone be respected and encouraging and even enforcing where necessary behaviors that enhance that sense of being respected on your team. Listen, this is more than a pie-in-the-sky ideology, folks. This is survival. If your company can't do this, you're going to lose your workers or you're going to have people in there that poison your culture. We are people that respect because we're Christian. I mean, if people can't work for a Christian boss and find respect, where do you think that they're going to turn to find it? We need to, we need to give that to them, right? And then the third thing, it does not damage the physical health and well-being of the worker, let alone their spiritual well-being and religious freedom. There's just so much that we can do here to implement a culture where people are open to God, where their own health is respected and esteemed, but it takes a leader to do that. It takes folks that say, I care about you. That's why I have you working for me. And that fundamental shift from whatever layer that you are in the workplace is commanded by by the the gospel and it's going to make the difference in your spiritual life. Wouldn't it be neat, in other words, to say the place where I'm called to exercise charity is to make sure that my workers can work with health, work with comfort, work with respect, and work in a way that actually enhances them as workers. This is what we're all about. And this is why Jesus has called you to be that leader in the workplace. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.